0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Galloway and Isabel podcast. My name is Thomas Galloway. So today I am doing something a little different. I'm going rogue on the podcast and I am going to uh, do this podcast by myself. I'm going to go through a few different things I want to talk about. And some of you might like it. Some of you might not like it. Either way, don't care. I'm doing it. I'm going to sit here and talk about books for either a medium amount of time or a long amount of time and uh, we'll see how it goes and we'll see if uh, people like this format. So uh, I'm going to, what I'm going to do here is do the top five books that I read from January of this year through April and then I'm going to give three honorable mentions. And for each of these books, I'm going to just describe a little bit about it, some of the stuff I got out of it, give you a little bit of background. Uh, one thing is, these are all nonfiction books. I, I do like fiction. I definitely see the value in it. I like novels. But at least right now, I've mostly just been reading nonfiction books. And I always want to push for the, the idea that there's a lot of nonfiction out there that either you may not have been exposed to in high school or wherever, wherever you became turned off by nonfiction, that actually can be really interesting, can really tell a good story about a person or an event or whatever it is. And it can be entertaining in a way that you may not have considered before. So that's going to be a common theme throughout this. The other thing I'm going to do is take it from the beginning, from the first, number one, first place. I'm not going to do this thing where I do the countdown, whatever. Let's just start from the beginning. I'm not going to make you guys wait Let's start with one, two, three, four, five, a few honorable mentions. Uh, At the end, I am going to dive a little further into one of my honorable mentions, which is a book about impeachment, which I'm sure a lot of people are interested in, especially right now, and they might have some misconceptions, particularly about how easy it is to impeach a president. It is not a quick process. It takes quite the offense to actually impeach a president. So uh, that's going to be kind of a deep dive at the end. So I decided to push that towards uh, to the end so that uh, in case you guys don't want to hang around for that deep dive, uh, that's perfectly understandable. But uh, if you're watching this podcast on YouTube, that's awesome. If you have to stop watching it and and need to go somewhere and you want to take the podcast on the go, check out the podcast app on your iPhone. The podcast is on there. And you can also check it out on SoundCloud. But first, before we get to this list, we need to talk about who is bringing you this podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Morning Bell Coffee Roasters. Morning Bell offers a diverse and unique selection of specialty coffees and have direct personal relationships with their suppliers. You can visit Morning Bell at 111 Main Street in Ames, Iowa, or get their coffee at the Wheatsfield Co-op or either high v location in Ames. If you do not live in the Ames area, that is not a problem. You can order off their website, morningbellcoffee.com, and shipping is free anywhere in the United States if you order over two pounds of coffee. And whether you visit the actual location or order online, let them know we sent you. Another cool thing about Morning Bell, in the last few months, they opened up the, fir- the front part of their shop, uh, it expanded it so it's significantly bigger. If you haven't been there a while, Definitely recommend going and checking that out. Okay, so let's get started with a list. Number one is *Sapiens: A Brief History of Humankind* by Yuval Noah Harari, and this book has really become popular. It's one of those as mass appealing as a book about the history of mankind. Humankind can be. Uh, it's very. It's um, reached a lot of popular acclaim among people uh, who are not necessarily in science or anthropology. And it was published in English in 2014. I believe it was published a few years before that um, and originally. And it essentially describes how our species has taken over the world. And he attributes a lot of it to our ability to trust in things we cannot see, like religion, uh, money. Oftentimes, especially now, it's not backed by gold or anything. So that is just trusting in the government to back that money. Uh, Our ability to trust in financial markets. And then our belief in what he considers one of the most important religion-like um, structures in capitalism. So we have this belief that there are a lot of important things, but one of the most important things is our ability to go out there and work hard and make money, especially in the United States. And our influence on the world has really increased this. Uh, all, we're, all the countries are very internationally intertwined economically. That's one of the main reasons that a lot of smart people and I would also consider this to be uh, fair, is that there's like there's no way that there's going to be another world war unless something absolutely insane happens. Just because we're also connected uh, in our financial markets with other countries, they'd be absolutely disastrous. We rely on each other way too much. It would take some kind of wild card, which could always happen, but that's what it would take to get to the point where we have a situation like that, but... I think there's a lot of good, uh, a lot of good opinions out there that would say that it is incredibly unlikely. That's the first book. So I I, uh, I listened to this book on Audible. I do listen to quite a bit of books, uh, just between work and going around wherever I'm going. Uh, it's a lot easier than sitting down, but I do sit down and try to read them because I think it's important to uh, really make yourself work instead of listening to stuff all the time. But this is a really good book. It's a pr- it's a very easy read, a very easy to listen. I imagine not a bad read for the subject matter that is covered. Uh, he does a really good job. That's why it's, I'm assuming that's why it's so mass appealing, is because you uh, it's pretty easy to consume. That's number one. Number two, The Big Short, Inside the Doomsday Machine, by Michael Lewis. This was turned into a movie that was really popular. I believe it came out in 2015. It was. I believe an Oscar nomination for Best Picture, and it was a, it's a great movie, and the movie does a really good job of representing the book accurately. They Steve Carell's character and Ryan Gosling's character, uh, they changed their name and they changed a few details, but it's basically the same person. Christian Bale's character is right on. And it's an incredible book. Uh, he, Michael Lewis also wrote Moneyball, which was turned into another great movie starring Brad Pitt, which is about baseball and the introduction of analytics to that sport. And that inspired a lot, a lot of other sports to catch up. And The Blind Side, which is, I'm assuming, his most popular book, mainly because of the movie that took off. And it was incredibly mass appealing. The Blind Side is the aberration in all his work. It is the only one that's really unlike most of his books deal with finance, economics, uh, analytics in various areas of business or sports. And The Blind Side, he re- only wrote that book because he knew the adopted dad of Michael Orr, and that's really the only reason that he did that one in the first place. Uh, but So if, if you love that book, you may not be super into, or that movie, you may not be super into every, everything else he's written, but I would definitely recommend checking it out because he is a Really, he's really good at finding the interesting story in whatever topic it is. So he finds these sometimes eccentric characters and does a really good job of laying them out uh, in his books. Big Short is a perfect example of that. And he's an incredible writer. He's written, um, I think, something about 10, maybe 12 books. And uh, I would recommend checking him out. And he also has a podcast he just came out with called Against All Odds. This means a lot to me because uh, it's on Malcolm Gladwell's uh, podcast network, and Malcolm Gladwell's a big fan of Michael Lewis. And I'm a big Malcolm Gladwell fan, so whenever Malcolm Gladwell recommends somebody, uh, I'm usually all in. And I, the first Michael Lewis book I read was The Blind Side, and I read it before the movie came out. So I was either 11 or 12, and I remember just walking to the library, and they had this like diagram of the one of the alternate covers was a diagram of a football play to indicate the blind side and how important that is in football and I was like really intrigued by this whole idea because I was trying to learn about the strategy of a variety of different sports then and uh, I remember like being really proud that I found that book among all these books in the library and I had it. And I didn't really recognize that Michael Lewis had written a lot of other books. And at that point, I wasn't that interested in reading about finance and economics. But as I've gone through my undergrad in business and have a lot of interest in these topics, uh, particularly how to regulate a complex industry like uh, consumer finance and how, and the Big Short does a really good job of talking about this, showing how difficult it is for consumers to understand what they're getting into in finance, uh, and a lot of other people talk about capitalism and all the benefits of that, and buyer beware, and survival of the fittest, and all that. And I get it. In a lot of purchases, interactions, there's a per, It's perfectly fine to you know try to get the highest price you can out of something. If somebody's willing to uh, buy at a price that you would be willing to sell for a lot less sell to them for that price. But there is a difference between, say, a long time ago, or even in the last what, 20 years, say, if two guys were like, one, one's trying to sell a pig to their guy, and the guy looks at the pig and he's like, this pig is dying. I'm not going to buy your pig at this price. That is a pretty reasonable time to say, okay, let capitalism do its thing. But you have financial markets and consumer finance that's incredibly complex. The people... Financial Advisors, and we'll get to this later with another book I read, but Financial Advisors and the whole market is making these different things people are buying is incredibly complex intentionally to confuse people and to a point where it's so specialized that you can't expect the average consumer to educate themselves to the extent that is necessary. And the whole industry of Financial Advisors is a whole nother issue you're not you're not a lot of times you are not getting someone who is completely on your working on your behalf in a completely unbiased way and we'll get to that in a personal finance book that I read that uh a little bit later but it gets it, he he gets to the point of this is you know there's a lot if there's one industry where regulation needs to be seriously involved this is it and I know this can be a Contentious political issue, but reading a book like this, and honestly, reading anything about consumer finance, you have a much no matter what side of the aisle you are on, you would certainly have some empathy for people who are in situations where they are desperate financially, and they really do not have an understanding at all of what they're getting into. Um, Very powerful book and incredibly entertaining. the The movie. The movie was a great indicator of... That's one of the most entertaining movies you can watch. It's like a, a documentary starring super entertaining actors, and it has this incredible pace. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, you should definitely check it out. And if you have seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That movie rolls. And the book is the nonfiction version of that. It's 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 a. It's not a long read. It's an easy read. And the characters in it are so fascinating that uh, it's no big deal. And... Even the complex um, topics like mortgage-backed securities, credit default swaps, um, CDOs, they go into all that in a way that can make it somewhat understandable or at least allow you to Google it and figure it out for yourself. Also, if anybody out there is intends to read this book or is just interested in this topic at all, I, I really enjoy talking about it. Uh, I've worked the last few years throughout college at a company that works with uh, a lot of uh, financial information, we go through, we work with the SEC a ton using their database. And so this topic uh, is one that I'm really into. Uh, so I'd be really interested in discussing with some people if they, uh, if they have questions about it or if they, just, if, they're, if they just want to talk about it. Okay, so let's see how far we're going. All right, 14 minutes, not too bad. I think I need to reset my camera. <laughs> Okay, so book number three. Book number three is Misbehaving, The Making of Behavioral Economics by Richard Thaler. He's a professor at the University of Chicago uh, School of Business. And he actually made an appearance appearance in the big short movie uh, along with Selena Gomez. Um, He's definitely the one you forgot. I forgot he was in that uh, movie. Okay, so the, the discipline of behavioral economics was essentially founded by two psychologists that Richard Thaler uh, Richard Thaler got to know and worked with and was really inspired by their work. Uh, one of them, Daniel Kahneman, he wrote uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, and Richard Thaler. Then really became the, even though he wasn't, I would say, he wasn't necessarily the inspiration for this field. He became kind of the father of behavioral economics. And his whole idea was that traditional economists consider people to be these perfectly rational actors. And usually they are not, almost always, except for maybe economists. And not always, them And so he was saying, okay, fine, your guys' models are interesting in a way, but they're not that practical because most people aren't even going to behave like the people in your models. And so he started this field, wrote a lot about it. This book is essentially a... It's somewhat autobiographical, but with a lot of concepts about the field itself intertwined. He does a great job. And he the definition of misbehaving, the title of this book, is... Anytime someone is supposedly supposed to act in a certain way, according to the traditional economic models, but they don't because they're just regular humans, they're not these perfectly rational actors, in these situations they are quote-unquote misbehaving. And because they're not following what the models would say they would be doing, which is almost all of us. We're not always doing that. Uh, We did a podcast recently about sunk costs, Um, basically anything that would be irrational would be considered misbehaving. There's a few key terms in behavioral economics. Bounded rationality is one of them. The idea that we're rational, but up to a point, that this has a a limit. There's parameters to our rationality. And the availability heuristic, which is relying on what you know already to make a quick judgment on something, whether it's accurate or not. You may not have... Uh, the information in your head already to make these judgments but because it's available you do it okay so this book does a really good job of going through a bunch of different examples in business and sports similar to uh honestly similar a little bit along the lines of michael lewis michael lewis's work where uh like one example nfl gms not understanding the value of draft picks and except for one team you guys can probably guess who that is. They've won uh, six Super Bowls in the last 19 years, and they've been to nine of them. Uh, being the really the only team that seems to understand the value of draft picks, always trading down, um, not using the pick early on. Trading, and honestly, they haven't had a whole lot of them recently. But they still use this strategy: trading down, trading a first for two second-round picks, uh, things along this along these lines that allow them to get a lot more value, and they don't have to pay the expensive rookie contracts, the first few uh, picks are provide the picks that you would have to pay them. And there are some really good, uh, there's a really good section in this book about this whole topic. Uh, I'll let uh, you guys dive in a little further, but it's really interesting just to see some of this real world application, especially in things, I mean, you might not be interested in behavioral economics in a business setting. But in sports, a lot of people have an interest in that. How are these things? And that's what Moneyball was with Michael Lewis in that movie. That's, a lot of people got into that whole topic, analytics as a whole, just because it applied to something they cared about, which was baseball, which was sports. And this is similar to that. He also, Richard Thaler, came up with this, a list of different things that people do that is irrational. And I have three of them here. He called The List. And I have three of them here that does a really good job of uh, summarizing behavioral economics as a whole, really. Okay, so I'm just going to read a few of them to you. Jeffrey and I somehow get two free tickets to a professional basketball game in Buffalo, normally an hour and a half drive from where we live in Rochester. The day of the game, there's a big snowstorm. We decide not to go, but Jeffrey remarks that had we bought the tickets, we would have braved the blizzard and attempted to drive to the game. So he's saying that if you pay for the ticket yourself, you would feel the need to fight your way through the weather, even if it was dangerous, and get to the game. But since they got the ticket for free, they felt like it was okay. They could uh, skip the game, and it was no big deal. And this is a really good application of sunk costs. Uh, If they had paid for it, they would have felt like they should have to go, but that shouldn't matter. Once they had paid for it, the only thing you should be doing is saying, Okay, and this is essentially our whole podcast we did the other night, so I apologize if some of this is repetition. But once you pay for the tickets, you should be saying, okay, we could go to the game and get a certain value out of that, but then also offset with the risk of possibly getting in a car crash, uh, or we can not go to the game and do something else that might bring us some value. But in the, the fact that you pay for the tickets or not, that's already past that's in the past that's in history it should not affect your decision at all but it does and i completely i even might do that i'd be like okay yeah i pay for the tickets i have we have to go but if i can go for free i'd be like uh, okay i mean no big deal we got for free it's not like we're losing anything either way you're losing something you're losing the value of possibly going to the game um, in both scenarios okay here's another example Linea is shopping for a clock radio She finds a model she likes at what her research suggests is a good price, $45. As she's about to buy it, the clerk mentions that the same radio is on sale for $35 at a new branch of the store 10 minutes away that is holding a grand opening sale. Linnea drives the 10 minutes for the $10 in savings. On a separate separate shopping trip, the exact same scenario occurs, except Linnea is looking at a television set for $450. She does not drive the 10 minutes for the $10 in savings. So she had one situation, I might've left out a couple parts of that, but she has one situation where she drives uh, 10 minutes for $10 in savings because it's $45, $35 instead of $45. But in this another situation, it's either $440 or $450, the exact same amount in savings but she does not drive the ten the ten minutes because it doesn't seem like much compared to the overall cost of the product. Either way, she's driving ten minutes for ten dollars, or she's not. the The cost of the overall product as a whole shouldn't matter. But that is a really good one because if I thought, oh, oh, thirty five instead of forty five, or even if you make this more exaggerated, say twenty instead of forty five, I'd be like, oh, that's that's half the price. But if you took the same different twenty five dollars, so you said. $425 product or a $450 product, you'd be like, that's nothing on the cost of the product. I'm not driving in 10 minutes. But in both situations, it's $25 or $10 or whatever you want to make the example. So this is a really good one. I think a lot of us do this. We just compare it to the percentage of the overall product, not the actual cost. Uh, you see this one a lot with car purchases. It's like a thousands of dollars hardly matter to you in a car purchase. It's like, oh, okay, because it's compared to the overall cost of the, car, the vehicle. But if you were, say if you were, uh, you know, just any other, like I say, a 3,000 versus 1,000, you'd be like, oh, that's a huge difference if it was some other product. But on the cost of a car, it's $2,000. Like, okay, whatever. If you're like an adult, I know we're like not paying that much for cars right now as college students. But for adults, they said, oh, 28 versus 30, who cares, you know, something like that. Um, obviously, people, a lot of people out there would say, "Oh, you no, know, I try to get the cheapest price. I get it, but you know the overall idea is true, uh, that it will, you'd be more inclined to uh, aggressively go after the $2,000 if it was only on a small, smaller purchase than a vehicle. Third and last example, you are lying on the beach on a hot day. All you have to drink is ice water. For the last hour, you have been thinking about how much you would enjoy a nice cold bottle of your favorite beer. A friend gets up to go make a phone call and offers to bring back a beer from the only nearby place where beer is sold. He tells you to give him the max price you'll pay for the beer. What price will you tell him? And if the beer is more than the max price, he won't buy it. Um, so he, the two options he gives you where he's going. He's either going to a fancy resort hotel in one scenario, and in another scenario, he's going to a grocery store. Everything else about the situation, the exact same. And when they to- when they gave this paragraph to people, for the fancy resort hotel, they gave a higher price than they would for a grocery store. Even though everything was exact same. They're getting the exact same beer. They're sit- they've still been sitting on the beach all day. And this brings in some I forget exactly what the the uh, the term is or the phrase but it's basically just that people depending on where you're buying a product from you are willing to pay more or less depending on what you traditionally expect out of that type of store or that type that venue or whatever it is uh, that at a fancy resort hotel you give a higher price you know okay seven bucks um, fine. But at a grocery store, you're like, don't pay more than $3 at a grocery store, even though you're willing to pay 7 for the exact same thing in the exact same situation. So another good example of behavioral economics. The main point about all of this that Richard Thaler would make is that, who's the author of this book, if I've been talking so long and you forgot, is that uh, in both situations, in all these situations, traditional economists with their models would say that people would not behave this irrationally and richard thaler is like okay but they do let's change the models or at least understand that these models really don't work and shouldn't necessarily be applied to everybody as a whole okay and that was book number three book number four is caro's fundamental secrets of winning poker so last little while i've really gone to poker been playing some online uh, I had to stop recently because I got too invested into it. I had to reset my camera because I so I've stopped playing poker online because I've gotten too uh, invested. I haven't been losing. In fact, I can actually make pretty solid money up Consistently playing online in low stakes games, but the problem is that I just like I became obsessed with it. I wanted to learn every single thing I could. It was hurting the other things I was trying to do as a person, and I ha- I've had to give it up for a little bit. I'll still play uh, with my friends, hang out, play a little poker, but uh, I can't be doing the uh, can't be doing the thing where I'm playing um, all the time, you know, online even if it is profitable. But this I've read a couple poker books. This one was pretty solid. It wasn't a perfect book, and I'm sure a lot of people... The problem with books on poker theory is there's always people who disagree with certain parts of it. I don't know if I... I don't really know enough to disagree or not disagree. Poker is also not a perfect science. There's a lot of things that can make you a much more rational player, but it's certainly not something that everybody's going to like. prove the best way to play. But a few things that you may or may not know uh, that really stood out and are as important as a poker player in general. Uh, Seat position is incredibly important. Acting later in in your turn is much better than if you have to go first. Uh, You can be much more aggressive at the end of the round if you're not under the gun, which is the first person to act when you're betting. Uh, Typically, I've been watching a lot of poker recently, and the most hands involve the dealer position and big blind position. Um, big blind only has to put up a little more to stay in the hand and a lot of times they want to defend their big blind because people are trying to push them off of it to get those the chips they've already put in. Um, yeah, dealer position is really good because you get to act last after the first round of betting. Every single time after that, you're acting last no matter what so you can play with not as good cards because you've seen what people are doing before you. Whereas, for example, if you're acting early in the hand, if you bet a little bit, and someone bets, raises you. Then you may not want to stay in the hands. So you've lost that little bit there. But if you're betting after that person, then uh, if they re- if they raise to the same amount, then you could say, okay, I don't want to manage. Th- I don't want to uh, call that, and you fold. Money flows clockwise, which is a thing he kept saying in the book, uh, which is another position thing. And uh, one thing that really stood out when I've been watching poker recently is there's a lot of college students, like master's students in statistics and finance and economics and different uh, disciplines like that. And you don't really have these old cowboy type of guys who just grew up playing poker and may or may not understand the probabilities, the odds of different situations. And I think it's much more fun to watch people who are feel like they're actually uh playing the probabilities rather than just saying like, oh, I think I can figure this person out. Because maybe, but also probably not. Uh, People, and this is a pretty good psychology topic that I'm sure mentioned in some of these other books, but people uh, far overestimate their ability to read other people in all kinds of settings, but particularly in poker, which is everybody thinks they can read people. And some people can. There are certain uh there are certain tells that work across the board where you can figure out the way someone's playing especially um inexperienced players but uh a lot of times it doesn't work and a lot of times people vastly overestimate their ability to read other people okay so that was number four number five the last book before we get to our three honorable mentions and this is a this is a super pragmatic book it's not the most fascinating book but it's a quick read and it's super important. It's called The Index Card Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated by Helene Olin and Harold Pollack. Uh, Helene is a columnist who primarily writes about personal finance, and Harold Pollack is a professor at the University of Chicago, not in finance, but he was had a, some personal finance issues with some things that happened to his family, some I believe in illness. Uh, and he needed to become much more financially responsible. So he did a lot of research and came up with this index card that he posted online. And it was nine rules for personal finance. And his thought was that just by knowing these basic rules, you could put yourself ahead of tons of people in, pers- in understanding the best moves in personal finance. Uh, so the book just expands on these 10 rules. Each chapter is one of these rules with a lot of extra information that you can know uh, not a lot of information the book's only like 190 pages uh, so it's a nice it's a really quick read and it's super important like it it, it will really change how you think about things and it um, I mean there's very few things that are as important as this even if it is a little boring um, just power through it just do it uh, but I'm just going to go through the rules really quickly I'm just going to literally read through the rules uh, you can also find these online just type in the index card harold pollock Uh, Rule number one, save 10 to 20% of your income. I think most people would uh, say more towards 20, uh, but that's not always feasible. Rule number two, pay your credit card balance in full every month, in full, not just the minimum. Rule number three, max out your 401k and other tax advantage savings accounts. Rule number four, never buy or sell individual stocks. Rule number five, Buy inexpensive, well-diversified, index mutual funds, and exchange-traded funds, which are ETFs. Uh, rule number six, make your financial advisor commit to the fiduciary standard. This is what we are talking about earlier with financial advisors and uh, how they, a lot of times, don't have your best interest in mind. A fiduciary is a financial advisor who has a legal uh, and regular, regulatory duty to put your interest ahead of their his or her own. Um, it's the alternative to this is the suitability standard. And they can provide you advice that probably will work in most situations, but they also uh, may be steering you towards uh, choices that are not optimal for you. So what you should do is make sure your financial advisor is on the fiduciary standard. You can have them sign something that says blah, 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 all this stuff. There's a, I forget what uh, organization has a form that you can just Give to your financial advisor and say, "Sign this," and it makes it. Uh, they're promising to act in the fiduciary standard. Uh, so just remember that word, fiduciary. That's what you want your advisor to be. You do not want them to be suitability or anything else. Fiduciary. Uh, how to find a fiduciary? You can go to the resources they gave, were the CFP board, which is cfp.net. Uh, supposedly, you can find one through there. I have not done any of this. I haven't had the need to do this yet, but. So I can't tell you how that website works, but cfp.net and then the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. Uh, also, you could probably just do how to find a fiduciary online and you can uh, for a financial advisor and you can get it, make it work that way. Uh, but that, I think that was the most important rule in this. Well, I mean, these all are important, but that's the one that like, that's such an easy thing to do uh, compared to the rest of them, compared to like saving a bunch or all this stuff. Just make sure your financial advisor is on the fiduciary standard. Rule number seven: Buy a home when you are financially ready. Rule number eight: Insurance. Make sure you're protected. Rule number nine: Do what you can to support the social safety net. Nine solid rules. Like I said, the book you can get on Amazon for like ten bucks. Uh, it will go into more detail on each of these, uh, and like it'll probably take you a few hours to read this book. Like literally, you can fly through it and that few hours could completely change your life. Probably more than almost, well, for sure any book that I'm telling you, uh, and probably most books, or most uh, most time you could spend on basically anything. Okay, so let's get to, I believe that was five that I went through. One, two, three, yep, five, okay. So let's get to our three honorable mentions. Number one, The Bill of Rights Primer. Uh, this book was written by Les Adams, who's a lawyer, and Akil Reed Amar, who is a constitutional law professor at Yale. He, general consensus would put him as the top constitutional law professor besides Cass Sunstein, uh, who is at Harvard Law. He was an advisor for President Obama. He has written tons of books on con- constitutional law, one which we'll get to in a second. Les Adams essentially took Akil Reed Amar's book, The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction, and simplifies it into a super easy to read uh, book that has in the margins it has a lot of little summaries of whatever the paragraphs are saying. So if you just read the summaries, uh, you would be way ahead of people, and that would literally take you probably half an hour because the summaries are like they're super brief, and then you'd be uh, you know a ton about Bill of Rights. Um, so uh, uh, and I have not read a Kill Rita Mars book. It is. I'm way more extensive I'm assuming because I've read a couple other of his books and they are very in-depth very long very they're not an easy read uh, it will make you a much better reader if that's something you're trying to do just read a kill read a kill read a Mars book any of them uh, that that really improve your reading ability but if you're just looking to learn about the Bill of Rights uh, this would be the move um, yeah, I mean I feel like it's just really important for all citizens to know a little bit about their rights Uh and even if you don't feel like reading this book, at least do a little research, just type in. There's probably a million YouTube guides on uh, videos out there. And you can also check out the Galloway Law Podcast. On episode 8, I think it was, I did a overview to the Bill of Rights with uh, Mark Kendi, who's a constitutional law professor. He's been on the podcast three times. Uh, he's a great guy. He really helped me get the podcast started. And this episode, the one we did, which is overview of the Bill of Rights was easily our most popular episode is half an hour and we just fly through it he did an incredible job when i first brought the idea to him of just well actually i just walked in the, for the day of the podcast these these guys i do the podcast, these lawyers and law professors i do the podcast with are incredible like i usually tell them what we're talking about but sometimes i won't or they'll forget and they'll be like so what are we talking about today And I'll just start talking about something very specific and they'll just sit here and answer these questions, just knock it out of the park. And that's exactly what he did. I came in there. I was like, he's like, so what do you guys, what do you want to talk about today? And I was like, okay, how about the whole bill of rights? (laughs) And he kind of chuckled and like, didn't seem super enthused. And I was just like, I just want a general overview. I'll read one of the rights and you give me, you know, a short summary Say like three, four minutes on it. And then, without, without blinking an eye, he just nailed it. It was incredible. Um, so check that out. It's half an hour, and it's pretty much all you need to know. Or read this book. So that was The Bill of Rights Primer by Les Adams and Akil Reed Amar. Okay, so we have two more. Uh, the next one is Down and Out in Paris and London by George Orwell, uh, author of 1984 and Animal Farm. And he, this is his first book he published. It's technically listed as fiction. It's a library. Some people will have it as nonfiction online. I saw some places say it was nonfiction. It's. It seems like it's mostly nonfiction. Uh, he basically is telling about his time as a writer in Paris and London before he had any success as a novelist, and he worked all these odd jobs as a waiter. Um, as a dishwasher, not a waiter. He was a dishwasher. Uh, he wanted to be a waiter and he has all these other odd jobs and it's really interesting. Um, and he also, he's just a good at writing. I always like reading nonfiction books by fiction writers because they do a really good job. I mean, they're, they're very talented writers and they can make, uh, their lot, li- their, anything they're talking about sound really good and it makes it really interesting. Um, So this one is definitely one to check out. Okay, so last one, Impeachment by Cass Sunstein. So he's making Sunstein. I've heard it pronounced both ways. not sure which way to go. Um, But it's one of the two, Cass Sunstein. And Impeachment, uh, it's called A Citizen's Guide, I believe. Uh, And so it is uh, nice and brief. And it gets to the point about the topic of impeachment. This guy just churns out books. Uh, it's incredible. Um, he's written, I think, uh, he well, he's been referenced more than any other law professor in the United States uh, by other people who have used his research in in their books or in their publications. And he actually, he actually was a uh, Mark Kendi, who I did the podcast with. He was, he was Mark Kendi was taught by Cass Sunstein at University University of Chicago Law School uh, back in the eighties. But this book's really good. He came out with a new edition or is coming out with a new edition very shortly. Uh, So if you want to wait, you can just check that out. That's basically updating it from, I believe, the original version came out two years ago when people were right when Trump became elected. uh, And obviously, immediately, people were talking about impeachment. Not for really any legitimately good reason. Uh, No matter what you think about him, uh, it takes a lot for a president to become impeached. And Sunstein's basically like, okay... You guys need to chill out a little bit here. I'm going to tell you what it actually takes to impeach a president. It's actually a very difficult process. It takes a lot to become impeached. And um, he wrote a book about it. So I'm going to go. I said I was going to go deep dive in this. I don't know how. I mean, like I said, if you guys don't care about impeachment at all, just shut this thing off now. And I'm not going to go too far into it. Basically, if you, if you have a little interest in impeachment, just keep listening. And, uh, it's at some point if it gets boring or you stop caring about our country, uh, you can turn it off. Okay. So I might be, I need, need to restart my camera. Okay. Camera restarted. Um, okay. So officially in this, in the constitution, article two, section four, the president, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And the really interesting part of that, so one thing that Sunstein prefaces all of this with is that we don't have a lot of precedent on what it takes to impeach a president. And no matter what he's saying throughout this book, Obviously it's based on history. he can't really speculate about what's going to happen, so it could all, be, all the other impeachment examples we've had or close to impeachments might not really matter. Um, it may actually like if you have enough people politically on one side in Congress, it might not be much that a president can be impeached for. I mean Bill Clinton was almost impeached or uh, actually we'll get to that. He was impeached but not convicted uh, he that was uh, basically anybody will tell you who really is being neutral about this that that should not even come close to impeachment. The Bill Clinton thing, which is a political situation, and essentially uh, we're saying that someone could become impeached uh, for not a whole lot. The high crimes and misdemeanors section of Article Two is the part that seems to <laughs> leave a lot. Uh, it's sort of like the catch-all at the end. If like if nothing if. Um, the president cannot be convicted of treason, bribery, or anyth- or something like that. Then we can just go, oh, high crimes and misdemeanors. People aren't really sure what that means. And it does seem like it kind of can just cover everything. So the specific steps to impeachment and removal. So a member of the House introduces an impeachment resolution. The impeachment charge must be approved by a majority of the House Judiciary Committee. A simple majority. Uh, that, and if a simple majority of the House vote to impeach, then the president is officially impeached. So this has happened with Andrew Johnson, who uh, followed uh, Abraham Lincoln after he was shot and killed, and Bill Clinton has also been impeached. Nixon resigned before he could be impeached. Uh, then there's a Senate trial. If 67% of senators vote to convict, the president is removed from office. This has never happened. So Andrew Johnson was one vote short. And this was either the late 1860s or early 1870s. I believe late 1860s. That probably would have been the timeline. Um, he was one vote short. So we we almost had a president um, removed from office. We've had two presidents impeached. And uh, obviously, though, that 67% of senators, that's going to take a lot of people. Uh, that can't just be, unless the, uh, one party has a big advantage, um, uh, you're not going to get, one party just to vote and have a president removed. You're going to need some people from the other side, and that's incredibly difficult. And people do not want to set the precedent of just removing presidents too often. Um, no matter what you think, you might think there's some drastic negative effects with a particular president. I'm sure, I'm sure some people feel that way about Trump, but you don't want to get in the situation where you slowly move, um, and some people might say this is, uh, the, this is not an issue. And this is not something to worry about. But there's no doubt that if you impeach one president, it's going to be easier to impeach another one unless they institute some new rules. You, it's just you've kind of opened the doors a little bit. Um, uh, okay, so next thing. Um, one the, of the... When people started debating impeachment or founding fathers, they came to where they are now, where it is difficult to impeach a president but is possible. Because if there was no ability to impeach, the executive would have too much power, obviously. If a president can be removed, they get a little too uh, powerful and they can do whatever they want. If impeachment was too is easy, the legislative branch would have too much power. They would be like, anytime they were upset with the president, they could just threaten him with him or her with impeachment, or just impeach them. Uh, and the founders compromised on having it, having the ability to impeach, but making it pretty difficult. And uh, this, conclu- this uh, compromise in some situations, I would say it's generally good. Uh, I completely understand the logic uh, that the founding fathers had. Uh, some people might disagree. Some people might say that it should be easier. Um, I, don't, I think everybody agrees that the ability to impeach should be available. Now, the counter-argument to that is, well, you just wait four years and elect somebody new. That was what they initially, the people who were in favor of not having the ability to impeach, they were in favor, That's what that was their argument. You guys are electing every for four years, just elect someone else. But I think we all understand that that might be too long, especially if it's early on in the president's term. Okay, so I'm going to close this podcast and this section on impeachment by going through uh, a few... Um a few different examples of um, impeachable situations. So there are obvious impeachable situations that he goes through, Sunstein goes through, and there's obvious unimpeachable cases. I'm going to go through the ones that are more difficult, that have some ambiguity, that some people would say the reasonable people could be on both sides of. And these are the ones that he lists out in the book. Number one, during or preceding a war, President knowingly misleads American people by misrepresenting evidence to suggest that not going to war would put U.S. in significant peril. President continues to mislead throughout the war. So he's lying to the people, um, essentially. But the kind of argument to this is like, okay, yeah, but war is pretty significant, is, a, is very serious and not, lying, and not misleading the American people in some way might give our enemies an advantage. If you're too honest with the people and too open with the people, you could be giving that information that uh, is counterproductive to our country and possibly very dangerous. Uh, so that would be the counterargument to this. Um, number two, after a terrorist attack in Chicago, the president engages in a series of actions that are widely seen as unlawful violations of civil rights and civil liberties. He supports detention of suspected sympathizers. His test for determining sympathizers involves deep intrusion into religious beliefs that disproportionately affect Muslims. Includes a lot of surveillance measures that would have been struck down in federal courts. And he gives examples of Lincoln and FDR engaging in serious violations of civil liberties during wartime. Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus. FDR created created internment camps. And then the relevant questions in this, does a president have a good faith legal argument for his actions, and that's what a lot of this comes down to. Um, I mean, the general public may not appreciate, may not like this, but when you're coming, when you're dealing with senators and you're dealing with what essentially as a trial in the Senate to remove an, an impeached president, you're dealing with legal arguments, and that's what they're going to respond to. And from what Sunstein, Sunstein could conclude, a good legal argument, a good faith legal argument. Could get you out of a lot of situations as a president, and let me see if there's any more that seem super relevant because there's quite a few actually. Um, okay, not in time of war, president lies constantly and on topics including taxes, foreign policy, etc. President does not have the in wartime justification for not telling the truth. Okay, so this is just another gray area. You could say uh, he's not lying. He's just spinning uh, the topic in his favor, his or her favor. Um, And a lot of this comes down to another key distinction he makes is that a criminal act prior to becoming president, prior to becoming president, is not an impeachable offense unless that act allowed you to get the presidency. So, something like uh, tax evasion, which is something people, a lot of people have brought up, that would not be an impeachable offense. You can criminal criminally prosecute him afterwards, after he's out of office, but was in office, that's not something you can impeach him for, even if it is criminal, uh, because it, didn't, it was a criminal act, potentially a criminal act, that did not have any effect on whether he actually got the presidency or not. Okay, uh, some of these... Obvious, unimpeachable situations are really interesting because a lot of them are things people have said that are reasons that, someone, that the president should become impeached. I think it's pretty clear. One thing I should say right, right now is that I am not a fan of President Trump. I had a lot of criticisms of a bunch of things he's done and his lack of knowledge of how a government works and all of that. And how our country was founded, the principles we were founded on, and from interacting with a lot of law professors, that has done nothing to dissuade me of this. It has only increased uh, my confidence in my opinion uh, tenfold. But n- my opinion does not change the fact that we that it is very difficult to impeach a president, and that we should not just be uh, get in the habit of impeaching presidents. But so I'm going to go through some of these obvious unimpeachable cases. Number one, a president issues executive order that's considered to be by many to be unlawful. If president acts in accordance with a good faith legal argument is not an egregious obstruction of power. Uh, so say a president uses executive order to require EPA to issue regulations under the Clean Air Act that are not lawful. Uh, so once again, a good faith legal argument. President issues executive order after terrorist attack that includes severe security measures, including invasive search of profiled persons at airports. These actions can be considered unlawful and may include human rights violations. It is not impeachable to reach a series of legal conclusions that courts and international law reject. Once again, good faith legal argument. He came to a legal conclusion conclusion that might be rejected by courts and international law, but it was a good faith legal argument. Uh, This, number three, is uh, the president cheating on his taxes uh, prior to becoming president. While in office, this is another one that, uh, while in office, president cheats on his taxes. While in office. While in office. Once again, he cannot be impeached. Although this, he has committed a crime. It was not an abuse of power. President can be prosecuted when he leaves office. Now, I'd like also to mention that all of these uh, this Cass Sunstein, I would say he would probably not say he was he would he probably not identify with any political party, but he was working advised President Obama He's President Obama's main legal advisor for at least a certain portion of his terms in office. Uh, he and he has above all he is loyal to the Constitution and to the principles. Of constitutional law more than any particular party. And the things he is writing here are not to be interpreted at all as a defense of Trump in particular or anything like that. Number five, uh, this one is a bit convoluted and I don't think is really necessary, but that basically concludes um, what I have to say about this book. Uh, like I said, a new edition coming out soon. It may have just come out, actually. I don't know for sure. Uh, the first one, though, is probably sufficient. It came out a couple years ago, but there have been more developments over the last couple of years that you might be interested in uh, learning about. But I think that's all I have. Uh, I really enjoyed doing this episode. I've been going on a long time. And if you enjoyed it, uh, please uh, like subscribe, share with others. If you want me to do something similar, I'm glad to do that. I would, uh, I would like to do a one on books from 2018, uh, just because, you know, I'm looking for stuff to talk about, trying to get some reps in doing these podcasts. And, uh, I'd be glad to do that. So, uh, thank you all for listening and everyone have a great day.